Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. So welcome to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Very good. And we're sitting here, still in the Harrogate Theatre, looking at Edward Fox and family in Saints and Sinners. I'm looking at Elaine Page. Elaine Page, one of the world's best-loved entertainers. Ralph Fiennes. Ralph Fiennes. And Chris Bonington. They're obviously quite big on Mountaineer. Dara O'Brien, sold out. We're doing a mountaineering thing, right, tonight. <laughs> You're going to talk about walking up mountains. I, I, this is where I get confused in these places. I always sort of think maybe if I'm here, I am... You know, whoever else has performed here. Max Miller. Exactly, Max Miller. Yeah, okay. Right, as we focus on your fantasies, Dean Beaton, what is the Privy Council? On the back of Rory's Privy Council outfit for the coronation, which I see Graham Norton was channeling in the Eurovision Song Contest, can you explain what exactly the Privy Council is? Is it a lifetime membership? Who joins? Does it have a purpose? Do you get paid extra? Very good. Okay, so Privy Council is lifetime membership. Generally, you become a Privy Councillor when you enter the Cabinet, but you can get it in the Shadow Cabinet, and actually Prime Ministers increasingly give it out. Judges. As rewards people, and judges get it. It was originally a sort of super Cabinet for the King, so it was the private Council of the King. And still there is a convention in Parliament that if you want to read classified documents, you're supposed to be a Privy Councillor, though I'm not sure that necessarily holds up much. You stick right honourable in front of your name for the rest of your life. And occasionally you are invited to do various ceremonial things. So there's the acclamation of the monarch. Which was televised for the first time. Which was televised for the first time. But the number of people in the Privy Council is getting very, very large, like the number of people in the House of Lords. And so I think it's becoming a pretty unwieldy type of body. And you don't get paid extra. You don't get paid extra. Okay. Okay. Uh, but you do get a beautiful uniform. Macron versus Clinton. Graham Perkins. Thanks for the Hillary Clinton interview. It was an enjoyable and interesting podcast. But I thought she was arrogant when she criticised Macron. Shouldn't those of us in Europe be able to think for ourselves instead of jumping into line when America snaps its fingers? Mm. Look, I really enjoyed the interview with Hillary Clinton, but I did think she was very dismissive of Macron um, in a way that slightly surprised me. She was basically making the point he'd been talking about European security, possibility of greater European capacity. And she was basically saying, I've heard this from presidents all my life. After his China trip. After his trip to China. And I think the Americans were, as we've discussed before, they were a little bit troubled by that visit and the extent to which he allowed himself to be portrayed by the Chinese as being somewhere between America and China. I don't think that was the purpose of the visit. And, you know, I think he just got a bit carried away with himself in one of the chats on the plane coming back. There is an American tradition of doing this, which is really interesting. So you remember Biden is always getting himself in trouble because he called Saudi a pariah state. He was very rude about Erdogan. He called him an autocrat. Hillary Clinton's doing this about Macron. The other people who do this, of course, are people like Erdogan themselves who are perpetually throwing insults around to everybody else. And it's striking that British politics isn't really like that. You don't seem to get huge populist points in British politics. Well, Macron friend or foe, let's trust. Oh, yeah, but that's not... I mean, I agree. I mean, that that was awful, absolutely awful. She said the jury's out. But compared to what Americans and Turkish politicians 
take as normal, which is throwing really offensive epithets against almost everybody. I mean, so yeah. Erdogan will say about the um, Egyptian president that the man's a tyrant and this kind of stuff goes on. And then he, he will compare the Israelis to goodness knows what. And then the Israelis will chuck stuff back. The Americans are more into that kind of politics. And Biden loves that stuff. A lot of his campaign was you know, attaching these extraordinary epithets to people. Mm. But we don't really do that in Britain. We tend to be politer about foreign rulers, don't we? Essentially, I, I don't feel that, but maybe that's because we lived through the Brexit period where we've just heard that Johnson and talking about friends and our friends and colleagues in Europe to their face while abusing them through the media. What about, um, uh, did you see Macron's piece in the FT at the weekend? No. Well, you know, we talk about a lot about how we want political leaders who kind of give big picture messages. It really was a big picture message. I think he was trying to sort of, catch up with the the American IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and signal that Europeans have got to be on that level of, of thinking. But it's, it's definitely... Um, well, we've got to really... keep watching Macron because the key challenge to him is, is he going to be able to bring together very, very soon a candidate who he can endorse? I know, he's, got to, he's got to think about succession. Because if not, either the far right or the far left are going to take... Well, it won't be the far left. It won't be the far left. It'll be Le Pen. Marine Le Pen. Yeah. Now... Uh, Bio Savage, why isn't the T-Sport business dealings getting more news? I listened to the Private Eye podcast and it looks like public funds are going astray on a monumental scale. Sarah Ashwin, T-Side Freeport corruption and the cover-up. It's a level of corruption worthy of Russia. It's going to take us in a very damaging direction if not exposed and challenged. We've said before that Private Eye seems to be the only media organisation that's really getting stuck into this, but the, the Financial Times are now onto it. I can't pretend to understand the ins and outs of it, but I do get the sense of a very, very, very slow-burning, massive whiff around this. Huge shout-out to Private Eye, who consistently, over I don't know how many decades, have broken all these stories. Well, this one, they've been going on about it for weeks, and we've said several times, why are the rest of the media not picking this up? The other people to give a shout-out to, the Yorkshire Post have been doing quite a lot about this as well. And I'm not just saying that because we're in Yorkshire, it's because I've actually been, I've been seeing this stuff online. So I think maybe that's something we should come back to. And while we're up in the, you know, this part of the world... We are going to be doing, we're going to have our first double-headed leading interview in a few weeks' time. Yes, very good, very exciting. Two Andys. Very good, two Andys, Andy Street and Andy Burnham. And the only reason I'm pleased that is that, generally speaking, I'm always told off that I never manage to remember when I meet people to raise it. I did remember at the coronation to raise the question of the interview with Andy Burnham. Mm, which is not quite the same as Kings. And- King of Thailand was there, and he would have been a real winner. <gasps> And we could have... Sorry, the King of Thailand from Munich was at the way... Yeah, 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 he came the, the, coronation. the coronation. I know, and I missed my chance. It's unbelievable. We could have done it in German. Exactly. You could have done the whole thing. Exactly. <laughs> oh, Rory, please. Honestly, you've got to get better at this. You really have. Question from Victoria Gray. Mm-hmm. You were brought back by a forward-thinking new government to take charge of prisons. What are the first three things you would do, and then what? Oh, wow. Uh, am I allowed to empty them? Yeah. I would release an awful lot of people who are there. Um, I would have a mental health assessment of every single person who is in the prison estate. Very good. And find out which of them could be better treated in hospital. Um, I think at some stage we are going to have to rebuild our prisons. Uh, so I'd probably have a rebuilding program as well. That's bloody expensive, though. Very expensive. About billion, what would you do? Billion pounds prison. My first three would be set minimum standards so I'd make it illegal to overcrowd prisons. So I'd give people a human right that they cannot be crammed two to a cell that the Victorians built for one and therefore force any government to decide 
whether they were either going to build more prisons or put fewer people in prison, but not be able to get away with overcrowding. Wow. Secondly, you might have to have a few of the, the migration barges brought in for the prison estate. Secondly, I would abolish short sentences. So any sentences under two years, except for violent crimes, I would abolish because I think there is very good evidence that sending someone to prison for a short time increases their chance of reoffending. And thirdly, I would get rid not just of the current IPP legislation, I make sure that any IPP prisoner currently in the system is released. On IPP, which we talked about last week, as Carmichael, Lib Dem, I didn't see the debate, but he sent us both a message saying that there'd been a very positive response from the minister to something that he had raised about IPP in Parliament. Oh, good. Well, as you know, I'm a big fan of Alex Chalk, who's the new Lord Chancellor. Although we didn't like his joint article with Suella Braverman, did we? No, we don't write joint articles with Suella Braverman. And John Major made a very strong speech on prison reform, which I think we both read and both liked. I thought it was brilliant. And I, I can't quite understand the extent to which I've become such a proselytiser for the politics of John Major. Despite being the person who brought us the fact that he tucked his shirt into his underpants. Don't do that. Fiona hates that being raised. Okay, don't Here's one. Mickey Moran. Jerry Adams, I'd like them both to answer why they didn't push Adams harder on certain events. I think he got off lightly. Huh. I don't know about that. I thought we... I've had amazing feedback on that one. Was there a moment in it where we could have gone in harder? There's no point going harder and harder on, are you a member of the IRA? Why do you never admit that you're a member? Because he's answered it 50 million times. I think some of the specific... There's the book, is it, what's it called? Say Nothing. I think there's a lot in there that we maybe could have picked on but the trouble is that he's just so it's a bit like Osborne and austerity I felt with Osborne when we joined austerity there just came a point where I thought well, we're now going around in circles I'm going to say what I think he's going to say what he thinks and we're going to get nowhere so move on and I, I just feel that with Adams I find it was much more interesting when we talked about I was fascinated by some of the things he said about the various prime ministers and, and the exchange with you about you being a soldier and you know, it was tense. I, I don't agree with Mickey Moran, though. I think we gave him a pretty hard so time. George, our Georgians from an interview is out on Leading this week. So people listening, this should just go to the podcast and look for Leading George Osborne. But I noticed somebody on Twitter saying that they thought that you'd been tougher on George Osborne than you were on Tony Blair. Would you accept that? Well, I agree almost with everything that Tony Blair does. So it's Tony... I'm going to give you a really tough time about how you delivered the peace process. I really am. Now, I, yes, I probably was. But, but the thing about austerity, we've talked about it so much, but it sort of goes to the heart. And I, and I don't really think that Osborne, do you think he really believes that austerity has delivered the goods that, the, that he secured? The, he can't believe it because it didn't secure the You know, we, we were talking in the, the last episode about all the different economic factors. And we talked about the fact that Syria since 1980 lurched up. So by 2007, gone from $1,800 to $10,000 and then dropped down today to $1,200. The Thailand went from $700 to $4,000 in 2007 and is now $8,000. But the British economy, and this is what I'm trying to get to, the British economy in the same period went from, in 1980, $10,000 per capita to $47,000 per capita. And today, since 2007, it stayed exactly the same. So basically, we've had no GDP per capita growth since 2007. Now, whether like you, you blame austerity or whether like George Osborne, you blame the financial crisis, there is absolutely no doubt. You also blame Brexit. 
absolutely on Brexit. So what you've just confirmed to me is, I said to George Osborne, the Labour economic record was strong and the Conservative economic record was weak. He had a real good line to that, didn't he? Weak. He, he said the, he By said the Lincoln play. Yeah, it's yeah, such an old cliche. Yeah. That. I wasn't giving him that one. Now, here's one for you. Will Taylor, who were the best civil servants you worked with and why? It would be good to hear about more junior ranks in particular. What was it made them excellent? I really, really liked some civil servants I worked with in Mr. Justice, for example. A guy called Andy, who is my um, private secretary, who'd been a prison officer. He's a kind of scrawny guy like me. He'd come from spending five years in the landings. He was brilliant about just bringing realism. If a prisoner escape happened, he would say to me, Rory, I have no idea why the officers didn't just grab him by the ankles. And that would then give me the confidence to go in and say, why didn't someone grab him by the ankles? In DFID, I loved the people in the field offices. So there's a woman called Bex Buckingham in South Sudan who'd been in the British Army. She was fantastically funny, realistic. She's now actually our acting ambassador in Venezuela and was a fantastic antidote to what happens when you become a director or a director general or a permanent secretary when it's easy as a minister to feel they're largely trying to run ring strategy. Mm. I could give dozens. This is what, funny, there were a couple of civil servants came to the event I did with Beth Rigby last night who, remember, I think I told you that somebody in the Ministry of Justice had told me that well, however bad you think it was with Rob, it's worse. Somebody last night from the Home Office said the same to me, that it's just awful at the moment, and that the SPADs treat the civil service with absolute contempt. Was that happening when you were, when you were there? My SPADs? I don't mean yours, but around government, did you hear that? Yeah, well, that was Ken Clark's complaint. I mean, Ken Clark had a couple of complaints. One of them was that cabinet government had collapsed and he did put the blame of that partly on you guys he said that under thatcher and major cabinet meetings were much longer the conversation was much more serious and post blair cabinet meetings had become quite cursory quite short and people weren't very interested in the views of cabinet ministers and we've got a leading interview on this coming up where jonathan powell is like yeah well what do you expect ministers don't really have much to contribute so why would we want to really he did not say that he did not say that Rory. you you, you can't pre you can't pre-spin our interviews everyone's, everyone's gonna have a lovely opportunity to listen <laughs> they'll also hear you lose your temper no, they will they, they, will. Will. they will um so that was one complaint by ken clark but his other complaint was that david cameron who'd himself been a special advisor loved special advisors more than he liked politicians and cabinet ministers. That's interesting, isn't it? And that's yeah. partly because special advisors, Ken suggested, are young people who can be hired and fired and removed at will, whereas someone like Ken Clark can't be. There are permanent bits of furniture. They're members of parliament. Well, until father, Boris Johnson kicks them out. House, exactly. Yeah. So I think we've got lots of questions to come. So should we take a quick break here? I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? 
Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Rest of Politics Question Time with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. Uh, Maria V. I am year 12 at the moment, thinking applying to study medicine. Regarding doctors, why is there so little conversation about why there are so few places at medical school? How it's so difficult to get in? Meaning that many capable students with excellent grades are turned away each year. The Labour Party did pledge to increase medical school places to 15,000. Do you think this will happen? I don't know. I didn't, even, is that, I didn't even know that was the case, that there was a shortage of medical... I thought we were trying to get more doctors. I thought we were desperately trying to get more doctors. And it must, presumably, they do have to set some kinds of standards. I would hope so. I would hope that you can just go and buy a medical degree. <laughs> so, listen, we have to come back. I don't know. Um, we've got questions about sporans. Ian Bancroft. Oh, good. I like questions about sporans. Yeah. On last week's question time, when describing his Scottish sartorial garb, Alistair mentioned that although he had several sporans, only one of them was functional. Please, can you put me out of my misery and explain what makes a sporan dysfunctional? Yeah. Well, my, my view on that, I assume what you meant is, I mean, as people listening will understand, a, a sporran is essentially a man purse. And uh, if you're running, you probably want to move it onto your side hip. Otherwise, it bangs around a lot. And it can then get decorated. So I've got one with goat hair on the front, horse hair on the front. Uh, I found a badger in the road that had been run over. You made it into a sporran? That's a sporran. Did you? That's a sporran, yeah. Did you make it? Uh, yeah, I worked with a friend to make it, yeah. You made your own sporran. How many sporrans have you got? I've got five. Five, you told me, yeah. I've got three, but only... So the functional point for me is one is the belt broke. The, <laughs> the other one, the baubles fell off. So there's only one bauble left and it I've looks a bit ridiculous. I've got one with two baubles, missing a third of the leather one. Yeah, it looks but it, silly. as long as it's the two there... And no, 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 it's the, the central one and the one oh, on the side. Oh, that's a dysfunctional sporran. No good at all, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no good at all. Meanwhile, I'm having a skin do made in Jordan. Okay, would you like to tell our listeners what a ski and do is? Very good, yes. Obviously, in Gaelic, it's a black knife, and it's what goes in your sock. But there is an amazing man called Zaid, who is a knife maker in Amman. <laughs> this is the second time you've mentioned the making of bespoke offensive weapons, Rory. And what was the other one? Are you plan- I can't remember. You talked about making another knife another time. I mean, Zaid, literally, he, he takes some um, huge sheets of steel that are used in industrial processes saws that are used for cutting massive bits of wood and cuts them into knife shapes and then he carves your name on the knife and then he does silver tops and bottoms so anyone going to Amman, go beyond the roman theater and look for zaid and get a knife made did you watch the eurovision song contest i did not Justin, was the eurovision vote rigged to get sweden as host of the 50th anniversary of abba winning I honestly think it would be unbelievable. Sweden, next year, you know what happens is that whoever wins it, they host the next one. So it was only in Liverpool because it was meant to be in, in Ukraine. Yeah. 
So Sweden have won it 50 years on from ABBA. And I just think the avatars should represent Sweden. Help me understand about the avatars. Is it that ABBA themselves are a bit old and crocked and they can't perform anymore? Presumably if it was 50 years ago that they won. Rory, you're talking about musical, cultural legends. You can't say old and crocked. They're older than they were. Very good. So what the avatars do, it's technology. So when you go and watch it, you, it is like you're watching a live ABBA concert back in the day. Right. And it is truly mind-blowing when you see it. Is avatar a word you made up like pedultery? No, I made up pedultery. I've also made up perseverance in the book, which you haven't mentioned much this today. I'm very disappointed with you. Oh, but what can I do? Publish this week. <laughs> pedultery I made up. But no, avatar is a, ma- a word made up by the ABBA avatar phenomenon which is phenomenal. And then now it's going to go to different parts of the world. Could you imagine Elvis Tar and any number of things yes. now that started it? Yes, it's already started. Uh, listen, this artificial intelligence stuff, somebody sent me the other day, as you know, I like Elvis. Elvis singing Freddie Mercury songs down the years, most of which were written after Elvis died. And it is incredible. Elvis doing Crazy Little Thing Called Love is unbelievable. That's pretty weird. And it's Elvis. I mean, even though it's not Elvis, it's Elvis. So, yeah, I think this musical cultural stuff is going to be... I'm sorry you didn't watch Eurovision. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. But I thought the wrong country won. I was rooting for... France came 16th and they were brilliant. Uh, I felt sorry for May Muller, the Ackland Burley girl who came second last. The Germans deserved to come last. As you know, I love the Germans, but they deserved, they were terrible. Croatia was one of the funniest songs I've ever seen in my life. But I think that Israel should have won, but I think politically... What was the Israel performance? Oh, I can't do it. It was very kind of funky. And, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, Syria. James says, what's the latest on the Syrian civil war? Where can you go and get good news and analysis on it? Why has this conflict received less and less coverage when it's still a major international issue? So my recommendations to James are... Look at Middle East Eye, look at Blogs LSE, look at the Arab Monitor, look at France 24, and look at Human Rights Watch, hrw.org, if you want reporting on Syria. Um, The other thing that's just vanished out of the news headlines is Sudan. It's still going on. It's extraordinary. It was like when I went to Turkey in the aftermath of this earthquake, which killed 40,000 people in two minutes, which wiped 10% off the GDP of the country. Actually, 4% off Turkish GDP, but 10% off Syrian GDP. And people are behaving as though it hasn't happened at all. These things are forgotten so quickly. Oh, no, it's bad. Uh, right, my final question. It will allow you to plug my book. Murray Mintz, what was your favourite book to write and why? What was my favourite book to write and why? Mine was my first novel, All in the Mind. Not, but what can I do? I enjoyed writing, but what can I do? I'm enjoying promoting it. I'm enjoying the fact that you enjoy promoting it so much. But no, my favourite was All in the Mind, my my first novel. So I loved writing my first book, Places in Between. I wrote it, um, I wrote half of it took me six months. And then the second half took me six weeks. And I did it alone in Scotland. My parents had gone away on a long holiday. And I was all alone in the house. And I just, what I loved about it was I didn't talk to anyone in six weeks. I would wake up in the morning, I'd dream about it at night, wake up thinking about it, I'd work on it in the morning, I'd have a quick lunch, I'd go for a walk, I'd come back, I'd correct in the afternoon, I'd watch 24 on television, I'd go to bed, I'd dream about it again, and that just went on. That's brilliant. Well, they're very similar, because I got the idea for it out on my bike, I saw a funeral, and I just started fantasizing about whose funeral it was, and it gave me the ending of a novel, and then I went back home, I'd never written a novel before, and I started to write it, and I didn't tell anybody I was doing it until I finished it, including Fiona. 
she just thought I was kind of, you know, doing upstairs working like I do quite a lot. And eventually I read it. Turned out you were upstairs skiving and writing a novel. <laughs> I, was, I was, but it was exactly the same thing. I was dreaming about it. The characters were in my dreams and I was waking up in the middle of the night and writing and doing it on my Blackberry as it was then because I didn't want to wait for the owner up. It's pretty cool. Okay, last question then. Uh, Dementia Among the Young, Ian Perkins. Having read Steve Thompson's book, Unforgettable, could Alistair talk about his involvement with the 2005 British and Irish Lions tour? And I think this might be, for our final question, an opportunity for you to discuss Dementia Among the Young. Well, Steve Thompson is a great rugby player, part of the England World Cup winning team. And he's, the book he's written is about his dementia. And it's becoming a big, big, big thing this now in NFL and also now rugby is dementia and the constant sort of battering of the head. He is an amazing character. He was, that was one of the most bizarre experiences of my life going on that Lions tour. It was probably, it was probably a bad idea, me doing the media for the Lions because the press were not going to make it, make it work. But I got on very, very well with a lot of the players. And my favorite, I don't know if it's my favorite Steve Thompson story. It's one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. I came out of a briefing. And you know this thing, did you ever play rugby at school? I did, yeah. And did you know that thing about, I don't know what it is, it's clearly a kind of posh public school thing, but they try and take your trousers off the whole time, debagging. So you have to tie the lace up really tight, otherwise. So I'm walking out of this press conference (laughs) wearing a tracksuit, and Paul O'Connell, Irish captain, and Steve Thompson debagged me, right? And as they did so, my Blackberry, which was in my right-hand pocket, flew out. With the novel on it? No, the novel wasn't on the Blackberry, but I'll tell you what was on the Blackberry. was a long note that I'd written, the title of which was TBGB Transition. Oh, wow. Plan. And this is flying in the press conference? It's flying onto the floor, and Steve Thompson has got it. And he doesn't know what's on my Blackberry, but he thinks it'd be really funny, not just to take my trousers down, but also to steal my Blackberry. Blackberry. I had to go and beg <laughs> the head of security, the lion security, who was a kind of, you know, quite a rough, tough ex-cop or ex-special forces or something. And I had to go beg him to go put the frightness on Steve Thompson <laughs> to get my Blackberry Because he wasn't giving it back. He did want to give it back, though. No, no. But no, so look, that, that's a sort of funny story about a very nice guy. But the truth is, this dementia and sport thing, he's, he's really shining a light on it. His book is very, very well worth reading. Okay, well, I think on that, maybe we should stop. Lovely to see you and good luck with the rest of the book tour. Thank you. The book being called... But What Can I Do? (laughs) You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course... Who killed Liz Truss? Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts.